And I wanted to thank you for coming out tonight and for everything you do for Clowns Rope. I'm wearing my Hippo shirt, so it's part of the series. And um, to help develop Atlas, which we wish you was in Clowns Rope, there's so much to accomplish, and I thank you, Ray Bird, for, for helping us towards that goal. Thank you. An ambitious amount of water. <laughs> I just want to begin. I want to begin by thanking Rabbi Tarragon. Rabbi, my bracha for you is that you should stop. Uh, you should stop needing to make all these initiatives to bring Klal Yisrael together. How many people can say that they've done more to bring Klal Yisrael together over the last couple years between Vayichan and Achenu? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great admirer and uh, I'm deeply grateful for all the work that you're doing, Rabbi. Thank you very much. I want to share something with you tonight that I think is deeply relevant to our times. To to analyze, to look carefully at the psukim of Peru Vu, both in this week's Parsha and in Parsha's Bereshus, and to identify some of the differences between these two psukim in the hopes that we can pull something out for ourselves in this time. In, in Parsha's Bereshus, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Vayivarach Aysam Aleikim HaKadosh Baruch Hu blessed them and he said to them, Peru or Vu, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and conquer the land. And rule over the fish of the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, all the animals that tread upon the earth. If we look in Parshas Noach, it's not one, but in two psukim. And I'm not going to do a, a perfect analysis here because to do all of that would take us a very long time. But first, the Pasuk again says, this Lashon of Vayivarech, it's not exactly clear what Vayivarech means. Is it a bracha? Is it a tzivoy? Rishayinim go back and forth on this. Vayivarech alikim es nayach ve'es banav, vayayim peru orvu umelu es So again, we see this notion that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving them a bracha, there's a, some sort of tzivoy of periyavirivya, and again, of filling the land. But here... Six psukim later, the pasuk sort of repeats itself, but with some interesting subtleties here. It says, "Va'atem peru urvu shirtsu ba'aretz urvu ba." Shirtsu, from a notion of like swarming upon or spreading out across the land, and multiply on the land. So, if we look at the psukim, there's what appears to me to be three fundamental differences, aside from the fact that. In Bereshus, it was all one pasuk, and in Noach, it's two psukim. But this this lashon of vikivshua, 
that were commanded in Bereshis, that Adam is commanded to conquer the land. And this lotion of Urdu, of to somehow control, to conquer, to rule over all of the animals in the world. That is missing from Parshas Noah. We don't find that anywhere in our Parsha. The lotion of conquering the land and controlling or ruling over the animals. That's not found anywhere in our Parsha. In addition, in our Parsha, there's this extra tzivoy, which we don't find in Parsha Spiratius, this lotion of shirtsu ba'aretz, spreading out, swarming over the land. Shaila is, what's the difference between these two period of Arivias. What's the difference between the period of Arivia of Bereshus and the period of Arivia of Parshas Noach? Uh, the idea that I'm going to share with you tonight is based on an idea that I learned from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Zechot Tzadik Levracha, but I, I do want to say at the outset that some of the Mashalim that I'm going to be giving are my own, not Mashalim that the Rebbe gave, but for me they're the best way to understand it, and so I hope to share them with you. What I, what I want to talk about is the process of change. How does change occur? Something that I think is relevant to us in our time here in Eretz especially at this stage of life, and more particularly now, as we go through this process, how we can understand the process of change. So I, I want to present to you the following mashal in order to understand this. I, imagine you have a person who's, who's a raging alcoholic. And their life has basically reached a tipping point. Their, their wife decides to leave them. She's taking the kids. The bank has foreclosed on his house. He's homeless. He no longer has a place to live. His family is not willing to, to give him money under the table to support him anymore. Nobody's enabling him anymore. He's living under a bridge. He's willing to do, or he's been willing to do, despicable acts in order to maintain his habit. There's, there's a process of destruction that's going on in his life. But as we examine this process of destruction a little bit more carefully, there's an element of destruction to it, but there's also an element of healing that's happening to this alcoholic. Because all of the systems that were in place have fallen away. Everything has sort of crumbled. And as long as he's living in this olam hadimyon of my life is working, he can continue behaving the way he's always behaved. And so the process of being broken down, of life falling apart, in many ways is also the process of rebuilding. Even before we get to any rebuilding, the etzem falling apart itself is already part of the process of tikkun. Because as long as his wife stays married to him, as long as he can have the image in his mind that he's a loving father and that his children love him, as long as he gets away with lying to his boss, so he can continue to live in this olamadimyon that I can be a raging alcoholic, but more or less things are working. Of course they're not working. But as long as the systems are in place that allow him to believe that things are working, life is basically going to continue as it always has. So rather than look at it as exclusively a destruction process, we would do well to think of this process actually as a soser almanas livnos. There's already a rebuilding that's occurring from within this process of destruction. That was, that's what we'll call level one of this marshal. 
there's a second level of this mashal, which I think is perhaps even a little bit deeper. And that's an inner serenity that somebody finds when everything else in their life is falling apart. They don't find the serenity from without. It's not some sort of support system that was there for them. At, at times of great crisis, there is no support system that could possibly do anything to bolster you. If a support system could bolster you, then we're not talking about an essential level of crisis. We're talking about the type of crisis from which there is no coming back. And in those moments, as everything in your life is falling away, a person discovers in a very, in a very interesting type of way, I'll call it like an Ein Hadavar Talui Elabi type of experience. Uh, an inner core of strength and serenity that somehow allows them to manage the storm. In other words, as they've uh, taking our muscle of the alcoholic, as he's hitting rock bottom, as he sees that his wife will no longer respond to his WhatsApps and that his kids have no interest in seeing him, as he as he's literally living under a bridge, there's there's a peace that he finds within himself, and that core becomes the place from which he rebuilds his entire life. It's the part of him that says there's still hope. You can get help. You can, you can join a 12-step program. There are ways of accessing, rebuilding more stable structures in your life. And again, so as we look at the two levels, there's two levels. Level number one we spoke about is a, is a type of destruction, but it's actually like really the dismantling of a system that was fundamentally not working. And then in addition to that destruction, there's an inner core of clarity, an inner strength, an inner resolve that a person discovers. Uh, the word I think we would want to use is something like a wellspring. Like a person discovers something from within that they can draw from. They're no longer drawing their strength from outside of themselves. They're drawing their strength from inside of themselves. And that process, again, I gave a very extreme muscle for it, but that process is on some level what every single person goes through as they go through any change in their lives. So take, for example, a, um, a high school teenager, a, a ninth grader who's very much drawing strength from outside of himself. You remember being a ninth grader? You remember showing up to school? You were just the... Uh, isn't it cute now when you look back and, and like eighth graders talk about how they, they rule the school, like they run... Like now, as an adult, you look back on that and you're like, you were like this big, you know, like you're, uh, like the biggest kid in your class was this big. You're not running the school, you're not running anything. But there's a vision of like, I rule the school. And then you come into ninth grade and you're a freshie. You're the low man on the totem pole. And there's this, uh, a process, I remember I went through this, I'm sure some of you went through this as well. There's, there's a process of, who am I friends with? Because even though you may have come into high school with certain friends, to continue to be friends with those people may not give you the, uh, how should we say this nicely, the social status, the, the sense of worth, the security that you need as you enter into a new stage of life. So what happens is that you might, let's say, hold on to some of your old friends, but you'll loosen some of those relationships and you'll sort of develop like, I want to be friends with that guy. You know, there's a certain, you're drawing power from outside of yourself. Of course, your old friends talk about you behind your back and they go, oh, yeah, he's too cool for school now. Now he's friends with all those guys. He's not really friends with us anymore. 
But that person who's going through this, it's an understandable type of thing. He's 14 years old, but he's drawing power from outside of himself. That only will work for a certain amount of time. If you're still drawing power from outside of yourself at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, that's probably not going to work for you for very long. Those systems need to fall apart in order for a change to actually take place. And so a person will sometimes go through a painful process of destruction, which is, let's say, where all of a sudden that cool group that you were a part of, they no longer want to be your friend. You're no longer cool enough for them. And maybe for a minute, you're sort of like between worlds. Like, you don't have your old friends from elementary school and your new friends from high school dumped you, so you're sort of in this, like, amorphous type of very tenuous position where you have nobody. But if a kid goes through a real process, let's say a 12th grader, an 11th grader goes through a process where they're sort of falling apart, what they can, if they, if they choose to look inside, is they can discover from the lack of self-worth, they can discover a nakuda of self-worth from within. That process of change is very healthy for a young man. Is when you lose all of your friends, what are you left with? You're left with no choice but to look within and say, am I enough for myself? even when I'm not surrounded by the coolest kids. Right? That's a very complex change process for a teenager to go through. We see it in marriage. Right? People who are, let's say, came into marriage with certain levels of incompletion, and they're, they're drawing from their spouse, they're pulling from their spouse certain, we'll call it certain psychoenergy, certain things that they had needs for. And so they married that person to fill their needs. It will work for a period of time, but there's a very painful process of destruction because nobody really wants to be married to somebody who's, who's like draining them of their energy. It's not a comfortable thing. But as the marriage, let's say, falls apart in a certain sense, that destruction is actually a good thing because those systems are falling apart. And it allows someone to say, oh, I was drawing from that person. I need to learn to draw that energy from within. So all processes of change follow this pattern. There's a destruction of the systems, and then there's a discovery of an inner core of strength that one did not know existed before that. We see this very much in the whole story of Noah. The Medrash and Bereshus Rabbah tells us that the world changed, that Noah stepped out of the Teva and he saw a new world in front of him. The question is, what does that mean that he saw a new world in front of him? It's very difficult to understand the concept of a new world, especially if, if, if we believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Mechadesh Betuva B'chol Yom Tamid that HaKadosh Baruch Hu's constant energy that he infuses into the Bria is what keeps the Bria afloat. It's very difficult for us to understand the idea that Noah could walk into a world and see something new that wasn't there before. In other words, 40 days earlier, or a little bit longer than that, right? But let's say before the, before the flood, Noah lived in a certain type of reality. When he exited the Teva a year later, he walked into a completely different reality. This is what the Medrash says. The Shaila is, what was the difference between these two realities? And so... The Rebbe explains as follows, at least to the best of my understanding. Before, before the flood, the world, even though it had been created, the world was in sort of a tenuous position. The world was not settled. And that word is going to be very important because the nature of what Noah does 
is he brings the world to a state of rest. That's why his name was Noah. Even though HaKadosh Baruch Hu had rested on Shabbos, that's more referring to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's rest. The Bria itself remained somewhat tenuous. What does that mean that the Bria remained tenuous? The idea is as follows. It's a very sophisticated idea. The world in its infant stage received its godliness from above, not from within. In other words, its reality was attached to something higher than itself, but it itself could not transcend itself. The, the nature of the Bria at that time was that it had no capacity for self-transcendence. There was nothing internal, so to speak, about the Bria that could reach beyond itself to become something that it's not. Uh, a good example of this would be like a, like a Talmud who's learning from his Rebbe. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You ever have an experience where you can only understand the idea as long as the Rebbe is talking? But as soon as the Rebbe starts talking, then the idea sort of like floats away. You ever, you ever say those words you're like, I had it and I lost it? What is that? Like, what, if you actually think about it, what does that mean? Like you understood it for a minute and then you weren't able to grasp the idea. That's why Chazar Sashir sometimes is so hysterical. You ever have that where you're like doing Chazar on Shir and you have five guys that were all sitting in the same Shir? Each one of them says something completely different that the Rebbe didn't say, but each one of them is convinced that's absolutely what the Rebbe said, and all five of those ideas make no sense. You know what I'm talking about? You ever have like an older guy who comes over to you and says like in a very sweet way, he's like, maybe let's listen to the recording again, right? It's like a, there's, there's, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to grasp the idea fully. You're only grasping the idea as long as the hashpa, as long as the input of the Rebbe is, is coming in. Another way of putting this is, uh, if you ever had a situation where, where let's say you were feeling really low, like a really melancholy type of feeling, and so you reached out to a couple of chaverim and, and they sat with you and, and you went out for a slice of pizza and you were just chilling out, and, and then as soon as they leave, you're right back to where you were. In other words, the feeling that you had of being okay wasn't because you were drawing from within, but because you were sustaining yourself from without. And the thing about sustaining yourself from outside of yourself is by definition, you're subject to the vicissitudes of life. In other words, there's no sense of stability in such a case. Because if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is sustaining the Bria from outside of itself, meaning if our capacity for godliness was only something that was coming from outside of ourself, then what happens when we behave in such a way that the world deserves to be destroyed? The nature of the world, if it's drawing from outside of itself, is it's only going to last as long as the thing that's sustaining it wants to sustain it. It's like imagine if you had friends that were sustaining you through an emotionally difficult time, but you were treating your friends like garbage. And they say, okay, well, if you're going to treat us like garbage, we're not going to be there for you anymore. Because you're not drawing, you're not okay for yourself, so your hope, you're holding on to them for, for, for your okayness, but as soon as they leave your entire system crumbles. That was the nature of the world in, in, in post-Mysiberatius pre-flood. In other words, there was nothing inherent about the world that had the capacity to become godly. Whatever godliness it was receiving was from above. The greatness of Noah, and really it's an inspiring thing to think about, that one person was able to create this, this incredible change, is Noah represents an element of stability within the tenuous nature of reality. In other words, the world that was created post-flood, that we'll examine in a moment, it came about because of the personality of Noah. 
And it was because he had a sense of self, a sense of serenity, a sense of truth for himself, regardless of what was going on around him, he was actually able to usher in this new world. And that's no small thing. I think a lot of people today either take one of these, like, two routes. Either they take the route, like, just bashing Noah, if, you know, and... And uh, you have no idea what he would have been in the times of Avramvinu, you know, quoting Rashi, but let's say to the extreme, right? And, and like, or they sing Noach was a big tzaddik, right? And it's like, that's like a Maimer Chazal now. And it's uh, from his Kepalach to his Fitzalach, it's like a, it's, it must be some Medrash that I didn't know about. But there's some, there's this like, there's this vast divide about who Noah was. In, in actuality, I think just to focus not on the persona, but just to focus on, the, on, on what he was able to do, that's no small thing. Right? In other words, to be able to say that he ushered in an era of a, of a fundamental shift in the world because he held on to his integrity in a time where everything was falling apart around him is no small feat. So, so what created the change in the world? Because before we get to what the change was, what created that change? So the change is twofold. The change is A, the Mabul, which as we know, many sources in Chazal already point to the Mabul being not only a destructive period, but also a, a type of a mikvah. Just like the Mabul went for 40 days, the mikvah has 40 saw. find in many places this parallel. But the idea that there was a cleansing of the world, that all the systems of the world needed to fall apart, is not only a destruction, but it's also a cleansing process. Because now that there's no more holding on from without, the world is forced to discover an inner core of clarity. And that inner core of clarity is the teva. I, I just want to pause for a moment to say this because I think it's a very big thing. When the world is falling apart around you, there are people that they have no choice but to, to leave. Because they, they don't know how to access some sort of inner okayness and rise to the occasion of whatever it is they're confronting. There's an opportunity, there's something that's happening now, I'm going to talk on an individual level before I talk on a Klal Yisrael level. There's something happening on an individual level for every single person that's in this room, and I'm seeing it from all the Talmidim and all the Talmidot that are here in Eretz Yisrael. The notion, when people say, how are we? How are we in this country? To say that we're okay is a lie. We're not okay. We suffered a devastation unlike anything since the Holocaust. To say that we're okay is not true. What I'm hearing people say is more subtle, and I think it's a very beautiful way of saying it. We're not okay, and we're okay. Which I think is, is really the appropriate thing to say. Things are not okay. To say that things are okay is a lie. Things are not okay. How many, how many boys from this yeshiva are out there on the front lines defending us so that we could be in this room right now learning Torah? It, it, to, to say that we're okay is not true. We're not okay until those guys, every single one of them, comes back to this base magic and is learning Torah. We're not okay until all of the fathers and all of the brothers and all of the sons and everybody returns home. We're not okay. And yet, we're okay. We're, we, we might be a, more okay than some of our parents in America who are watching the news all day and struggling with the anxiety of what they're hearing on Again, I'm not even commenting on the, on, on the quote-unquote reality of what's being reported. That by itself is, is, is an unbelievable thing. To, to see with your own eyes how what's being reported and the reality on the ground are two separate things. I'm not even talking about that. But there, there's a sense of like, this is terrible, this is awful, but every one of us is discovering an inner source of strength, of clarity, of stability, of serenity, 
a, a place of okayness within the lack of okayness. That means that every single person in this room, every single person who's in this country right now, is, is discovering about themselves an incredible level of change. If you were a person who was reliant on your family, and now you're here 6,000 miles away from your family, and things are frightening outside, and there's a breaking down of a lot of the systems, but you, you've been able to successfully turn inwards and discover that you are a mayan, that there's a wellspring of strength from within you, that means that massive levels of change are taking place every single day that you're here. Every single day that we're here, massive levels. There's a certain, if you'll think about it like this, a 16-year-old growing up in his home, there's a certain infrastructure of stability. You don't need to discover inner stability because you, you've been gifted with stability your entire life from without. People who go through crisis situations where especially they can't lean on people for support in the same way, the gift of that is the discovery of that inner strength and clarity from within. So every one of us in this room, including myself, every one of us in this room is experiencing massive amounts of change right now. The growth that's happening is exponential. Most of us don't even realize it because we're in it. But there's no doubt that six months from now, ten years from now, we'll be able to point back to these times and identify that these moments of, of strength were, were so critical. One can almost imagine, like, imagine a chasson on his wedding day saying, like, oh my gosh, I'm leaving my family, I'm about to marry somebody, I'm about to start my new job, and like, will I be okay at doing this? I, I remember myself, when I, when I started, uh, when I was married, I got married in June, so I was starting to learn in Kailul in September, and I remember turning to my wife, and like, on the verge of tears, saying like, what if I can't do this? Like, what if, what if like, you know, I've set myself up for this Kola lifestyle? I wasn't so much worried about the money, I was much more worried about like, Will I, will I be a London? Will I be able to meet these goals that I've set for myself? There was a, a lot of pressure that I was feeling. And there's something uncomfortable about that type of pressure. Imagine going into those moments, but already having the discovery of strength that you know you can do hard things. That's no small thing. So we, we tell our children, have a good day. right? We don't tell our children... Um, like, and again, it would be a weird thing to say as they're walking out the door. Right? Like, I, I happen to say a very weird thing when my kids are walking out the door. I'll give this to you as a gift. First of all, as a father, you're going to learn the geschmack of saying strange things to your kids, especially in front of other children. I want you to know the greatest bracha in the world that you have as a father is, is embarrassing your children. There's nothing more geschmack than that. But the... the um, my kids hate that for now, but Be'ez Hashem soon they'll discover for themselves how awesome it is. But I, I tell my children as they leave, I say, uh, like, and especially my teenagers, as they're like walking out, if I miss them, I'll call out from the window, uh, make good choices. That's what I scream to them out the window. Make good choices. And like my 16-year-old won't even turn around anymore to acknowledge that I've said those words there. It's so deeply embarrassing because I'm screaming out the window in Ramape Chemish, which is like a bungalow colony. And every person here is Berg screaming out the window, make good choices. What we really want to tell our children, though, if we could wish them anything, we would say, do hard things today is what happens to a society that doesn't go through hard things? Where do these kids learn to have strength from? It, it's, it's a wild, it, again, it seems to be a very elementary idea. It's not an elementary idea. If we send our kids to camp for, for 11 months of a year, right? If, if their high schools are camp type of experiences, and the only time during the year that they're not in camp is June, because that's their off time from camp before they go to camp. If a kid doesn't have to struggle through taking a test and working hard and discovering 
a, a sense of like responsibility and accountability. If they've never done hard things, then they've never had to, to find that source of strength from within them. The teva is not just this, this like safety type of experience through the deluge of the flood. It's the discovery of an inner sense of serenity and stability when everything else in life is falling apart around you. Of course, what follows is Noah walking into this new world. And, and the new world that Noah encounters is a world that's discovered its own inner godliness. It's no longer drawing from outside of itself, but it's discovering its godliness from within. And if you look at the mitzvah of Periyavarivu, you can see this. In, in, in Gan Eden, in pre-flood reality, the world was something that was meant to be conquered and ruled over. There was an element of kibush that's still fundamental to the world. Of course, that's the basis of everything. But it's a more childlike, infantile type of experience. If, if, if something doesn't have the capacity to draw from within itself, you need to, you need to rule over it. So, for example, I'm not going to have a conversation with my six-year-old about, uh, about the value of, of, of looking both ways before you cross the street. It's not something that they're intellectually capable of handling. I'm just going to be very dogmatic about it. If you don't look both ways before you cross the street, then I can't let you out of this house. It's dangerous and you will die. That's, it's a very simple, practical conversation. I'm not going to sit there and talk about the existential value of life you know, as, as we confront man's mortality and, and the, the dialectic tension between one's desire to leave this world and maintain his own dignity of within this world. I surely encourage you to look both ways before you go across the street so you don't splat. Like, I'm not having that, that philosophical, psychological conversation with the child because I don't believe that they have the capacity to, to really find these ideas from within themselves. It's a very simple, dogmatic, kibush type of experience. It's, it's ruling over the animals of the field. We don't find that in, in, in post-flood reality. In post-flood reality, the world has matured. Of course, it has to go through the process of falling apart in order to discover its inner maturity. It has to reach a certain distance from Hashem where Hashem is no longer sending in His godliness because from within that distance is the discovery of one's own inner godliness. And so there's no, there's no vision of kibush. There's no vision of a rudu over the, over the animals of the field. But what there is, is an added compelling idea that a person is now meant not just to fill up the land, but to swarm all over the land, to spread, to be everywhere in the land. In other words, there's a certain capacity for, for expansion when a person has found an inner core of clarity from within. And, and that's really what I just want to highlight as we finish this year. When a person discovers the inner core of clarity, they don't stay within their Daladamos anymore. As once you're okay, now you're okay to be a part of larger things than yourself. And so true leadership takes the following form. A, a, a real leader is not somebody who's drawing from his followers. A real leader is somebody who's okay for themselves. And because they're okay for themselves, they find this inner compulsion to share with everybody else. There is no doubt in my mind that that's what's happening in Klal Yisrael right now. I was just speaking to one of the YU Russia Yeshiva about, uh, I don't know what time it is, but at 10.20 tonight. And um, he, he was saying, I, I of course was not alive in 1967, but based on what he's hearing here in Eretz Yisrael, 
And based on what we're experiencing here in Eretz Yisrael, he says there has not been achdos like this in Klal Yisrael since 1967. Why is that? Why are we experiencing this level of, of this level of achdos? Why are there so, so much expansion that's happening in the world right now? There's, uh, there's no more lines. It's a very beautiful thing. There's no charedim, chilonim, mizrachnikim, datilumi. There's no, there's no lines anymore. It, it's wild to see that in certain Haredi neighborhoods, they're, they're cooking, I mean, they're, I mean, they're used to cooking for large families, but cooking for entire bases of people. I mean, it's wild to see. Um, my brother-in-law is, uh, is in Sava, and uh, we sent with him some, um, he's in intelligence, so we sent with him just a couple of cakes and cookies for the base. And uh, he, he messaged me that one of the generals was picking at my daughter's like cakes, and he's like, send more, like he liked it. So, uh, so I mean, let's just take a second and appreciate, how Jewish is it that we go to war and everybody's like, what can I make for you? That's like, <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the most exceptionally, you like brownies? Every soldier's like, yeah, that's what I need before I go into Gaza. You, know, like, like, you have good chocolate chip cookies? I like the soft ones. You know, like, yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Imagine like a guy running and going, I shouldn't have had that last breakfast. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the, um, I, don't know, I don't know if we have enough bulletproof vests, but, you know. Pizza, there's a ton of. The, uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. So, so my, I said to my daughters, my, my sister called me up and she said, Benji wants more cakes. So I called up my daughters and I said, girls, um, hit the kitchen today. You know, like, just, like, whatever we have, make it all. And I, I said, I suggested to my daughters, I said, maybe call your friends and have your friends call their friends and have their friends call their friends. So that was at around 10 o'clock in the morning. So I got home at around 7, and then I had to take care of something. So till I was able to actually like get downstairs was 8.30 at night, and there was not walking room in my kitchen for the amount of things that had been baked. And I, I put everything in my car, and it was the entire back seat, the entire front seat, the entire <coughs> trunk. It was like you couldn't see out the back. And my daughters were under the food. They were like, you know, like uh, when you like go away for a while and like your parents like pack things. I don't know if you guys all flew stuff, but like when I was a kid, we like put stuff on our, on our you know, on our bodies as we drove down to Boston. And, and I showed up to my parents' house where my sister is staying and we started unloading the car. And it just kept coming and kept coming. And it was like eight trips, nine <laughs> trips, ten trips. And each one of us is carrying like, you know, 15 trays at a time. And my, my father starts crying. My father's like, I, I just never knew that we could do this. And I was like, Dad, we did this in a couple of hours. You know, like, this is not a big deal right now. And it's a crazy thing to think about. What happened, what happened to democratic reform? I, I was driving today to Yeshiva, and I noticed on the overpasses, there used to be all these signs, anti-democratic reform and pro-democratic reform. And those signs are gone. Instead, there are signs that say, one nation, that's how we win. I'm like, look how the signs change. It's like, uh, I don't know if you saw Back to the Future, you know how like, the, the picture changes. I'm like, look, look how the bridge changed. What happened? Teretz is like this. Every system that we had in place fell apart. Everything we knew about stability and reality in Eretz Yisrael is gone. Nobody thought for one second that this could happen. We all were relying on this sense of security that we had 
it'll never happen. It couldn't happen. It's a billion dollar fence. It's it's like it would never like nobody in our wildest <coughs> imagination could have imagined such devastation. My um, my wife saw a woman and her daughter who needed a tramp, so she she gave them a tramp. It turns out they're from Steyrot, and they told this this girl, this teenager in the car, was telling my daughter, like their neighbors. Just I don't even want to I don't want to say the words like. It wasn't like, it's not academic to any of us in this room, but for them it was like their neighbors, their immediate neighbors. In other words, they heard the sounds outside. They got rescued in a miraculous fashion. It's a crazy thing. Our entire system fell apart. We all went through a mobble. We went through a mobble. We don't, we don't even understand what happened. Every system that we had fell apart. And yet, there's a core of inner clarity that's been discovered. A strength that we all found within ourselves. And not only... Did we find that strength within ourselves? But because we found it within ourselves, there's this expansive quality that's happening right now in Eretz Yisrael. Every Jew is finding each other. This has the capacity. It has the capacity to usher in a new era in Am Yisrael's history. If we do it right. If we do this right. If, this is, if we want this to be more than just a passing phase, this can't be this sort of like external, we relied on each other in times of crisis. Because if we do that, then we haven't really discovered anything. If we lose one system, so we just discover another system, then we haven't really done what needed to be done here. In other words, if it's like, okay, we were relying on the border fence, now that we're not relying on the border fence, we're relying on our unity. That's not, that's not what we mean here. That's not good enough. For this to be a reality, it needs to be, we're okay. I'm okay. Everyone in this room is okay. And from that deep place of every one of us being okay, we can reach across the divide to our brothers and our sisters, to our cousins, to everybody in Am Yisrael, and we can stay united even after the enemy passes. And there's no doubt, this will pass. I don't know how long it will take, but this will pass just like every other time in history. The ending here is already written. We don't know how it'll play out, but we know that we're going to be okay. But if we want, what's going to happen if, let's say, the war ends in, uh, God willing, very soon. Let's say it ends in a week from now. What's going to stop us from going back and protesting about democratic reform? What's going to stop us from, from, from being in a situation where we're clearing about what's, what's, the, what's, what's the capacity for Tel Aviv to hold an outdoor minion on Yom Kippur? What's going to stop us from fighting again? How do we know that we're not just going to revert back to our old ways? Do we want this to last or not? If we want it to last, then something fundamental has to change. If it's only a system, then the system, like every system, will eventually fall apart. Unity in Klal Yisrael is not a system that we rely on in order to make it through. It's the discovery of a, of a shared inner essence. And that can only come when each one of us, on an individual level, discovers our own inner strength. The opportunity right now for every person in this room is enormous. The reason I'm excited to participate tonight, and I'll be honest with you, I shouldn't share this with you, I really wasn't going to come tonight. I, I really have a concussion. I'm not joking about that. I, really, I didn't go to yeshiva this morning. Uh, two nights ago I got a concussion. I'm really not supposed to be here. I pushed myself to be here because of how valuable I think this really is. I'm not saying that from like a I'm a hero type of way. It could very well be it's a very stupid thing to do because I'm going to drive back tonight. Uh, you know, like, if you're my mom, I'll let you know. I'll text you when I get home. You know, <laughs> it, it, This is a really important thing. You're not just in a base medrash sitting and learning at 11 o'clock at night in the schus of a chayal. 
This is a, which is not a small thing at all. I don't mean to minimize it, but you're doing something more than that. You're expressing a shared essence by participating in this program. You're expressing a shared essence with every single Jew in Klal Yisrael, <coughs> wherever they are. That's no small thing to be a part of. That, that's, a, that's a game changer. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, a paradigm shift in the way you think about yourself. We, we really can do this. It's not going to come from people my age, I promise you. Change never comes from people who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s. Change has always come from the youth. It will come from people like you sitting in this room and reaching inside of yourself so that you can reach out to others. If, 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 if my generation hasn't done it already, then your generation is up. It's your turn now. And, and I daven for all of us that you guys make the change that we need to see in this world. Don't pull from outside of yourself, not even from other Yidin. Discover your inner clarity, your inner core, and Mamela reach out to everybody. If we can reach out to everybody, then we will be Zaycha to usher in the next level of creation, which is not only a post-Noach reality, but a post-reality where we usher in this new era of Olam Abba, where we live like they did in the Teva, where all the animals, everybody in the Teva lived in harmony. And that, that concept of, of, a, of a peace in the world, it comes from a table-like reality where a person discovers their own inner strength. Yeratzim of Ne'avinu Shabbat Shamayim, that we should be zaychet to it, but karav mamish.